right, good morning, church family. Today is the day we finished the book of Haggai. Who knew it would take us four weeks to do two little chapters, right? Uh, I hope that you have enjoyed this study of this book like I have, though, because there's been so many great truths in the book of Haggai. It's become one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. Um, You know, our title of this sermon series has been Living with Kingdom Perspective. And so it happens to be one of the core values here at Heritage Kingdom Perspective, that idea of living for God's kingdom, making choices in our lives that um, affect his kingdom in a positive way rather than living just for ourselves in our own kingdom. Today's sermon title, though, which singing that song a minute ago is just the perfect one. It's called Promise Keeper because that is exactly what God is. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the main idea, okay? I know especially for some of you teenagers that were with me at camp, you're already exhausted. So I'm going to give you the main idea up front. That way if you fall asleep on me, you will at least have gotten the main point right here off the bat. Are you ready to write? Because God never breaks his promises, we can look forward with hope to the day when he will make everything right again. Amen? Let me say that one more time. You write that down. That's important. Because God never breaks his promises, we can look forward with hope to the day when he will make everything right again. The reason that we are able to live with kingdom perspective, the reason that we can choose to live with our time and our resources and our giftedness with kingdom perspective rather than our own perspective is because God is faithful. We can trust him. He is the ultimate promise keeper. You know, if you're a family member here at Heritage and you've been here a while, you know that's our story. God is faithful. If you are visiting today, you are visiting a church where Our story is God is faithful. He has provided where it seemed like there was no way to come up with what we needed. He has uh, rescued people. He has rescued marriages. He has rescued people from from the slavery of, of addiction. He is faithful. You know, when Sydney and I and our wives started this church in 2007, we were not professional church planters. I don't know if you know that. You might think that things were going so well that we must have done this a lot before we started Heritage. The fact is we had never been a part of a church plant, and yet God is faithful. We thought maybe we should read a bunch of books, so we read a bunch of books. They were not much help, I got to tell you. We just looked at each other and said, we're going to have to trust God. And, and every step along the way, um, the people that have surrounded us said, well, we better just trust God. God is faithful. God is faithful, and that's what he's done. That was also the story, in fact, last week. You know, I don't know if you know, but we took 60-something teenagers to youth camp last week. God is faithful. We brought home four of them that have said yes to Jesus and want to be baptized. God is faithful. And, and uh, that's what he does. We pray, and he responds. And sometimes it's difficult for us as humans to trust God like that because everyone here on earth at some point or, or another has let us down. Even people that are really important to us and that we know love us at some point some point along the way, they've broken a promise, and they're not 100% faithful. I mean, has anyone ever had someone break a promise to you? Yeah? Has anyone in this room ever broken a promise that they made? 
maybe once or twice? Sure, sure, we're not completely faithful. I mean, even when we really, 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 really mean to keep that promise, sometimes life gets in the way, sometimes we're not able to keep it. But that's not the story with God. If God had ever broken a promise, we wouldn't say God is faithful because we would remember that one time that he broke the promise and we would wonder, can we trust him this time? But God has always been faithful. In 1997, I turned 20. Okay, I made it through my teenage years with girlfriends and all that kind of stuff. So at this point in my life, I was an expert on promises and promises being broken, right? And in that year, in 1997, the Backstreet Boys came out with a song. It was called 10,000 Promises. Let me read you some of the lyrics of this Backstreet Boys song. It says, Once I could handle the truth when the truth was you and I, but time after time all the promises turned out to be lies. Now I see I'm just somebody who wasted my time and money. What a lie, you and I. What about your 10,000 promises that you gave to me? Your 10,000 promises that you promised me. This guy's hurting. His girlfriend didn't keep all of her promises. Well, he should have known what he was getting into, I feel like. But the people of Israel, they knew a thing or two about promises, didn't they? They had made promises to God. God had made promises to them. And even though they weren't very good at keeping their promises, God was always faithful to keep his. We know that because we have the Old Testament. We can read about it. And even though sometimes it would take years and even generations to see the fulfillment of those promises, God was faithful. God was faithful. Over and over again, you're going to hear that today. The story of the people of Israel starts way back with one guy. His name was, anyone? Abraham. Okay, God chose this guy named Abraham. Not because Abraham was some significant, great, incredible person. In fact, I'm pretty sure he worshipped other gods. But God chose him out of his gracious mercy and said, because of I've, my choice of you, I'm going to start a nation with just you. And the people of your family are going to be a great nation. And one day I'm even going to save the world through your nation. And so Abraham, he had sons. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Joseph. They end up becoming a very big family. In fact, a huge nation living in Egypt. And the Pharaoh in Egypt didn't like that there was this gigantic nation living inside of his nation. So he turned them all into slaves. You remember that? And then God sent a man named Moses, right, along with ten plagues from God into Egypt and helped to rescue his people out of slavery. They cross the Red Sea, they go into the wilderness, wander around, they get God's laws, and eventually God leads them into the promised land with a man named Joshua. Well, they go about their, their life, and eventually the people of Israel are looking around at other nations and say, you know what, God? You've been really good to us. You've been faithful, but we'd like to have a king the way all the other nations have kings. We'd rather have a, a human king rather than saying God is our only king. God said, well, you're, you're going to get what you wish for then. And he gives them a man named Saul, King Saul. Not a really nice guy, but he was the first king of, of the Israel people. And when Saul's reign ended with his death, David became the great king. You'd have heard of King David, right? Wrote a lot of the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. He's special. He was uh, a man after God's own heart. That's how the Bible described David. That's pretty great. Well, God made a promise to King David. Okay, and that's where we're going to start today. God made a promise to King David. It's a very important promise in the Bible because 
One of the things I love about this sermon today is that we're going to see how this whole thing fits together. We had some great conversations last week at youth camp with teenagers. You know, some of them say, well, I just don't understand this. Well, I don't understand that. And we would talk about the beginning and the end and everything in between and how this whole thing fits together. This is one of those sermons. And when God made a promise to David, we find that in 2 Samuel 7. So I know you've probably already turned to Haggai. Put your finger there and turn backwards to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This promise from God to King David is known as the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. Okay, and we're going to read two verses in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 12. And here's what God says to King David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. He says, when you're dead, okay, at the end of your life, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, your family member, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now, up to this point, who do we think he's talking about? Solomon, right? David's son, Solomon, who is a great king from David's family, who ended up building a house for God. He built the first temple. But then listen at the very last part of this verse. He says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, what? Forever. Hmm. Can't be talking about Solomon. Solomon's dead. He is not still reigning forever, right? Right, right. I promise that's not, a, that's not a trick question. Solomon died, okay? He did not reign forever. So after Solomon, we had some good kings like Josiah. We had some bad kings. And one of those bad kings was named Jehoiachin. And Jehoiachin was the king of Judah at the time of the Babylonian exile. He was a bad king. The Bible says that he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And because of that, the Babylonians came in. King Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to to Jerusalem. and, And Jehoiachin, the evil king, had to surrender to the Babylonians. And their nation became exiled there in Babylon. Now, Jehoiachin's short reign was actually predicted by the prophet Jeremiah. One of the great things about the Bible is that it's prophetic. We see the Bible tell things that are going to happen before they even happen. That's amazing. That's a miracle. God said that Jehoiachin would be removed from the throne and be taken to Babylon before that even happened. Look at what Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 22. Now go to about the middle of your Bible where Psalms is and then keep going a little bit. You're going to see Proverbs. Okay, you're going to find the bigger book of Isaiah. Jeremiah is right after Isaiah. And in Jeremiah 22, we see this prophecy of what's going to happen to Jehoiachin. Now, he had had his name changed to Kaniah, so don't be confused. But in Jeremiah 22, verse 24, says this, As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they long to return, they shall not return. 
He says, even if you were that signet ring, do you know what a signet ring is? It's a seal. This is that ring that was very precious, very important, very special to a king because this was the, the authenticity, if you will. When the king would write a letter and he would put it in an envelope and he would seal it. If you've ever watched those kingly shows on Netflix, you might have seen this. He'll punch it with his ring and it's that seal. He'll put it in some, in some wax and some hot wax and put it on there. And it, so when whoever opens that, they say, hey, this is from the king. Okay, I can trust it. He might have worn it around his neck because it would always be with the king because you couldn't lose it. You can imagine what would happen if that was in the wrong hands, right? I mean, anyone could just write whatever they wanted and say, hey, this is from the king, and people would have to believe it. He says, even if you were that special, God says, I would tear you off my finger, Jehoiachin, because of your sin, because of your evil. But listen, the curse upon Jehoiachin went deeper than just his removal from his throne and his exile to Babylon. Look at what verse 30 says, Jeremiah 22:30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Whoa. So this line of kings from David's family... It ends with Jehoiachin, a fact that had ramifications for this Messiah that we're waiting on, who would reign forever, who was going to be the son of David. So the Davidic covenant that we just read about is now over. And you say, well, wait a minute, Brian. You just got done telling me that if God makes a promise, he fulfills it. That if God makes a covenant, you can take that to the bank. So what's going on here? Now we turn to Haggai. And let's see how God is going to end up fulfilling his covenant after all. Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, same day as last week. God is still speaking. He says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them, by the sword of his own brother. Here we go again. God talking about shaking the world, right? Turning everything upside down. He's been kind of been a theme for us in the book of Haggai. God's saying something is coming. Get ready. It's kind of like all the people that start telling and yelling, hey, the stock market's going to crash, stock market's going to crash. Eventually something bad happens. Everyone can be right eventually. But God says, hey, listen, I'm fixing to do something. I'm fixing to do something. Get ready for it. This time God uses some language to remind his people of past events. Did anybody pick up on that? Did you pick up on that as we read that? Did it remind you of anything in the Old Testament, any stories? Let me, let me point these out to you. He says he's going to overthrow God overthrew the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that? Shooting fire down from the sky. Genesis 19. Now he's going to overthrow, what's it say? The throne of kingdoms. He says he's going to destroy. He destroyed the Canaanites for their sin and cast them out of the land right there for Joshua and the Israelites, just as he promised. Now he's going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. See, these nations that are against God and against his anointed people, they are going to stand no longer. Nations that are against God and his anointed Messiah will eventually stand no longer on that day when he shakes the world and reverses all things. He uses the word overthrow again. He's talking about chariots and their riders. That reminds you of a famous story when, 
when the people crossed the Red Sea and then the people of Egypt chased them in on their chariots and horses. And what happened once the people of Israel were safe? He overturned the chariots of Egypt, sending the troops and horses with them under the waves of the Red Sea. And now he again is going to overthrow chariots with their horses and riders down to destruction. And then it says, by the sword of their own brother. Does that remind you of Gideon? Do you remember the story of Gideon in Judges 7? When all this noise and chaos went on and then Gideon and his little, his little team of, of warriors, there was so much chaos that the enemy just ended up killing themselves. God says, here, I'm going to do that again. Horses and riders will go down, every one of them, by the sword of his brother. See, God is using this historical language. The Israelites, they would kind of know what he was talking about. We weren't there, but they knew. They knew these stories. He's reminding them of times where he powerfully stepped in and judged the wicked, but also rescued his people. He says, I'm still your God. You're still my people. And I will always remain faithful to my covenant promises, no matter what. But God's rescuing power, it's not only historical, is it? It's not only great stories for us to remember about the past, but his rescuing power is for the present and future as well. That's why we sang that song earlier. He says, I've seen you move the mountains, and I believe you'll do it again. Amen? The fact that God has been faithful in the past is exactly what gives us the confidence to believe that he will be faithful in the future. That's why we trust him. That's why we believe in him. That's why we don't give up our hope on him, even in times of difficulty. You know, May 18 is a special day in my home, okay? May 18, I see you smiling. That's our anniversary. And Brooke had this idea, so I give her all the credit. But on our anniversary, one thing we started doing when we had kids is we would pull out the old video from our wedding day and make the kids watch it with us, Okay. Now, it's been, it's, they've done it quite a bit now, and now they just say, do we have to do this again? But we say, yes, sit down on the couch and watch this video. And, and I know, you know, the guy at our video, at our wedding day, he had the big video camera like this, you know. And so we will watch the beginning parts of all of our family and friends smiling and laughing and running around telling jokes. And, and that's great for them to see everybody looking all young. But then the important part, we want them to watch the ceremony, right? Especially when my dad, Papa, their Papa, my dad was the minister at our wedding. When he starts talking, and he starts talking about these promises that we're going to make to one another. And then when me and Brooke start talking back and forth, and we're making these vows, right? We're, we're making covenant promises to one another. And we get to go back and we watch that, and we want our kids to see it because we want to remember those promises we made. But it also, they go, man, it's been 20 years now almost since you guys made those promises now I can trust and that, that this is going to be good in the future, too. They can see that. It's good for us to look back and remind us of those things, but also to look forward and then use that as our faith builders. As Christians, we don't only have the Old Testament like the people of Israel did. We also have the New Testament. See, we have all the promises and all the mighty works of God in the Old Testament, but we have the story of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection in the New Testament that fulfills all those Old Testament stories and promises. All those things that were pointing to somebody, some Messiah, they pointed to Jesus. We have the book of Acts and those stories of the first church that should really encourage us to see how when they would pray, God would answer prayer. And that how God was the one that was constantly at work to build his church. We have all of that. Then we have 2,000 years since the Bible was finished 
of history of God doing incredible things around this world. Times even when individuals like us would pray and he would answer it. We have all of that. One of the kids at camp this past week, he goes, I can't believe that kid said yes to Jesus. He said, right before he did that, I prayed that that kid would say yes to Jesus. And then he said yes to Jesus. Do you know for that kid that prayed, that will be a faith builder, a faith story in his life for the rest of his life. Because he will always remember that God is faithful because when he prayed, he said, when I prayed for your will, God, that that boy would say yes to Jesus. That's exactly what happened. God is faithful. Amen? In times of struggle, God has provided. In times of doubt, and that's okay, by the way, God has proved himself every time without fail. But it's not only about the past that these reminders assure us of God's faithful, faithfulness for the future as well. And that's what he did for the Israelites um, here in the last verse in the book of Haggai. This is God renewing his vow. It's a reminder of him uh, of his covenant promise with David. Look at verse 23. On that day, by the way, that day, that little short phrase is used in the Bible over 100 times, okay? That's a new theme for you. So every time you see that day in your Bible, whatever you do to underline, circle, square, highlight, do it to that day. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. On that day, that day where God's going to shake the world again and the heavens and turn everything upside down and restore everything to his original plan, on that day, I will take you. The message from God to his people through the prophet Haggai purposefully uses the term signet ring. Did you catch that? Just like in Jeremiah. Remember when God said, if you were my signet ring, I'd take you off and throw you out because of your unfaithfulness, because of your sin, the evil in my sight, Jehoiakim, right? He says, no, no, no. You, Zerubbabel, I have chosen you like a signet ring. And he reverses the previous rejection of the royal line of David. And he declares the restoring of the Lord's covenant promise to David. That special status that had been lost because of Jehoiachin's sin, Zerubbabel had regained it for himself and his descendants because of his faithfulness. Do you remember chapter 1 of our book, Haggai? Remember when, when God spoke the first time and said, Hey, it's been long enough. Get back to work rebuilding my temple. What did the people do? What did Zerubbabel do? They feared the Lord and they obeyed. They got back to work. And because of that faithfulness, God is renewing his covenant with his covenant people. Just like last week. Obey equals blessing. Disobey equals curse. Look at the language here in verse 23. The Lord of hosts says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel. He says that I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God initiated this. God initiated it. This is the renewing of the Davidic covenant, and it's God's doing. Why? Simple answer. Because he is faithful. It's his nature, even when we are not. Because he is the covenant promise keeper, even when we don't live up to our end of the bargain. Did you know what that means, that covenant means? It means there's you do one side of the covenant, and I do one side of the covenant. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of weird things going on, 
these ceremonies where they would cut these animals in half and split them in half and walk between the two of them. And it was a, it was a way of saying like a good handshake, like you do your role, I'll do my role. But do you know that when God makes a covenant promise with a human being, he's always making a covenant promise with someone who is a sinful human being. And he knows going into the deal that he's going to have to fulfill both sides. Do you know that? That's what God does. That's a loving Father God. He goes, I'm going to make a promise with you, and I know you're going to break your half, but I'm going to fulfill mine anyways. You can't follow the law? I'll send my son Jesus, the son of God, to follow the law. You can't make a sacrifice that's good enough to deal with your sin? I'll make the sacrifice that's good enough to deal with your sin. He fulfills both sides of his covenant. Isn't that good news for us? God didn't choose Zerubbabel because he was one of the all-time great kings of Judah now. Okay, this isn't King David. This is Governor Zerubbabel. Remember, they're still under Persian control. That's why he's called Governor of Judah. But Zerubbabel was obedient to God. He did lead his people to be obedient to God. And guess what? He came from the right family. Did you know that Zerubbabel was the great, 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 I'm not going to keep going. There's 14 of them. 14 great-grandson of King David. The family line that God promised that one day a king would sit on that throne and his reign would be forever. Isn't that fantastic? But we don't look to Zerubbabel. He's not the end of our story. We know that to find our hope. We look to the greater Zerubbabel. And if you turn a few pages in your Bible, we find the New Testament And if you look right there, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Now, those few pages in your Bible represents like 500 years of history. But if you'll look at that, what's the little title there in Matthew chapter 1, the little header? It says the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Does your Bible say that? And if we look down in chapter 1 of Matthew to to verse 12, look whose name we find in the genealogy of our Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel. Amazing. Verse 16 says, And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Jesus is the greater Zerubbabel. He is the, the servant of God who was obedient even to his own death on a cross the servant that was able to receive the blessing of being the king that would one day reign forever. And here's the crazy thing. On the cross, Jesus actually looked more like Jehoiachin than he did Zerubbabel, didn't he? Let me explain. You see, God allowed Jesus to surrender to his enemies the way Jehoiachin surrendered to the Babylonians. And on the cross, Jesus was rejected by God. Jesus was forsaken by God. He was under God's curse. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But just like God's temporary rejection of David's line in Jehoiachin had a promise behind it to use David's family and his plan to save the world through a king, this temporary rejection on the cross had a promise behind it that God had chosen Jesus, this son of David, to be the one to bring salvation to the world. And so that temporary rejection on the cross did not last, did it? Because when Jesus was resurrected 
and then ascended back into heaven, where did he go? He took his rightful seat on his throne next to God the Father in a kingdom that will reign forever. Amen? Why? Because God is faithful to his covenant promises. At the cross, God shook the heavens and the earth and established his new world order. Christian brother and sister, listen to me today. If you are a Christ follower, you are chosen in Christ. You are adopted by God the Father, chosen. And as a, you are as precious as a royal seal or signet ring on the king's hand that he would never let get far away. The, Paul, the Apostle Paul asks you this rhetorical question. He says, what can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? It's rhetorical because the answer is obviously nothing. Nothing. He's chosen you. You didn't deserve it to begin with. You can't lose it if he's chosen you. But then if the answer is nothing, why do we fear the rejection of people when we have acceptance of God? Why do we focus on material possessions that will rust and fade away when we have an eternal inheritance that is invaluable? If we are more than conquerors in all of these things, why are we so slow to believe the promises that the ultimate promise keeper has given us? Christian brother and sister, trust God in every situation. He is faithful. And while you wait for that final shaking of heaven and earth when God will come to judge and separate and restore all things, in the meantime, like Zerubbabel, live a life of servant obedience to God the Father. Experience the Father's full blessing because you know that you can trust him because he's faithful. Because God never breaks his promises, we can look forward with hope to the day when he will make everything right again. That's for our Christians. One more person though I want to speak to. To the not yet Christian, to the not yet believer in the room today. The danger of not putting your trust in God, your faith in God, is that when that final shaking comes, you will find yourself on the wrong side of history. Yes, it is true that God is faithful even when we are not. But there is one requirement to joining his family and receiving the benefit of eternal life. And that requirement is that you must know God and his son Jesus who he sent into the world to save the world. You must have faith that when Jesus took your place on the cross and died for your sin and rose from the dead to show that death and sin no longer have their power, that that act was enough to rescue you from your sin and take you from darkness to light, from death to life. You don't have to have the whole thing figured out, and you definitely don't have to clean up your entire life before you come. But you do have to believe the Bible says you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Lord of what? Lord of your life. Ruler. King. King forever of your life. And just like those teenagers did this last week at camp, you can do that today. I'm going to pray, and as soon as we're done, if that's you, if, that's, if, that's you, if you're the not yet Christian, but you say, I'm ready to put my trust in Jesus, I want you to come and talk to me when I say Amen. You can come and talk to Pastor Sid. Come and talk to Travis. You can come and talk to anybody that you think will love you and point you in the right direction. It doesn't even have to be a real scholarly question. You just have to say, hey, I want to know Jesus. Teach me how to do that. I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. How do I go about it? That decision right there will give you eternal life with a heavenly Father who will never break his promise to you because he alone is faithful.
Can we pray? Father, you are so good. You alone are God and you have been faithful 100% of the time for eternity. We can never um, live in a way that would make up for our sin, but Father, you have made a way by sending Jesus, your son, to live a perfect life in our place. And because of that and because of his sacrifice on the cross, we get to receive his righteousness. It's not fair. It's just grace. We are indebted to you, Father, and because of that, we want to live our lives glorifying you and our forever King, Jesus. I pray for those who don't yet know you, Lord, that they would turn their face back to you. They would repent and be baptized and move into a life of receiving a full blessing from the Father. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on the cross. And thank you, Spirit, for you dwelling the very presence of God in our lives. This entire plan is amazing, a miracle to me. We are grateful, and we love you, our Father in heaven. Amen.